Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hello and welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons podcast series. I am Jonathan Danoff and will be moderating today's topic. I am a practicing orthopedic surgeon specializing in joint replacement surgery in Long Island, New York, and I am a member of the AUKUS Patient and Education Committee, where our mission is to provide education material for patients who suffer from hip and knee pain and diseases such as osteoarthritis. We have provided a series of education materials, videos, and even physical therapy home exercise programs at our website, www.hipknee.aahks.org. We are fortunate today to be joined by two distinguished internal medicine physicians who are leaders in their respective fields, as well as two other orthopedic surgeons who are part of our national committee. I am looking forward to our upcoming discussion today. Everyone, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Pete Cacavello. I'm an internal medicine doctor in Indianapolis, Indiana. I've been the director of Indianapolis Perioperative Medicine since 2003 and my practice is solely dedicated to the perioperative care of orthopedic patients. And I've seen over 30,000 primary and revision joint patients in the last 18 years. My name is Dr. William Wallace. I am from Marshall University in West Virginia. I'm a medical director of our joint replacement center as well as the medical director of our perioperative services department. And I've been taking care of perioperative patients for about 20 years. I'm Brett Levine. I'm an orthopedic surgeon from Chicago at Rush University Medical Center, specializing in hip and knee replacement, and I'm happy to be here tonight. My name is Matthew Bullock. I'm one of the joint replacement specialists at Marshall Orthopedics, part of the Marshall University School of Medicine in Huntington, West Virginia. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining us today. This discussion will be a series of podcasts, and I'm looking forward to our discussion about the advances we have made as a medical community in optimizing our patients for orthopedic joint replacement surgery, which has helped to improve patient outcomes and decrease risks for patients. In this first episode of the three-part series on patient optimization and medical management prior to joint replacement surgery, we will gain a better understanding of the differences between medical clearance and patient optimization as well as discuss various modifiable risk factors for patients preparing for hip or knee replacement surgery. Dr. Wallace, can you start us off and explain to us why is patient optimization important and why should you care if you're a patient listening to this podcast? I'd say broadly that uh, patient optimization is essentially a system designed to help prepare patients for elective surgery so that they can experience the best uh, possible post-surgical outcomes. Our goal in this is to uh, identify medical conditions as that uh, we can modify and manage uh, preoperatively that can help to focus on decreasing their surgical risk factors. And in the end, uh, we hope to help to decrease length of stay and decrease uh, complication rates. So along those lines, Dr. Cacavallo, what is the difference between what we traditionally would call medical clearance versus what we're now calling patient optimization for joint replacement? Well, I don't really like to use the word medical clearance. I think it gives a kind of a false sense that patients are without risk. Stratification and optimization are probably better words. Number one, letting patients and surgeons both understand what their risks are and the potential complications, as well as identifying which one of those risks are improvable or managed or optimized better for better outcomes. Yeah, no, I totally agree. What we've found is it's 
best on the orthopedic side to have a strong collaboration between the primary care doctors, cardiologists, uh, hematologists, and certainly other specialists that might be involved in the care of a patient. So we can all put our heads together and make sure that patient has a safe journey through surgery and has the best possible outcome. So what are some of the risk factors that you think about when the patient comes and sees you in the office before surgery? Well, I think we'll hit on a lot of the, you know, modifiable risk factors, smoking, weight, uh, malnutrition, diabetes, uh, as well as some of the other not as common, you know, poor dental health, unevaluated anemia, uncontrolled pulmonary conditions, as well as identifying and informing the patients of those non-modifiable risk factors like age or a medical condition that has been optimized, but is still a, a significant risk for surgery. So yeah, certainly one of the ones that always comes to my mind when I'm seeing patients in the office is smoking status and nicotine abuse. Bill, how do you talk to a patient about a patient that comes in that may be a pack-a-day smoker and they've been smoking their whole life? Fortunately, all of our surgeons are on board with having that as a, as a, as a hard stop. So we do encourage smoking cessation. And I am myself more concerned with the smoking itself and not as much with the nicotine. I think that there's been much more data to support that it's the contaminants in the cigarette smoke uh, and the carbon monoxide that actually lead to the majority of the wound complications and, and things of that sort. So I'm okay, honestly, with patients moving over to uh, nicotine supplement products. We actually are fortunate that we have multiple devices in our clinics, uh, carbon monoxide detectors, uh, and we actually test patients if they are smoking at that time uh, to get a value that we either put them into a non-smoker, a smoker, or heavy smoker range. And we use this as a behavioral modification tool to test them once again as they get closer to surgery to verify that they are uh, in the non-smoker range. And, and until that is the case, we do not operate on the electric toe joints. What is the problem with operating on someone that's a smoker, though? To me, smoking is one of those easily modifiable risk factors. You know, there are definite links to uh, surgical complications. We, we know that multiple studies will prove it. So it's a very important one to me because it is an easy fix and it does help the general health of the patient. And we've actually been very fortunate to have some studies show that we're close to 60% or 67%, I think was the exact number of the patients that we cause to stop smoking in order to get their surgery. And a year later, they're still not smoking. Yeah, there's been some recent papers presented at AUKUS this past year, actually, discussing that a significant number of patients that you were able to get to stop smoking before joint replacement surgery actually continue to maintain their abstinence from nicotine abuse after surgery. So it's actually been a really great deterrent from smoking after surgery. So that, that's been a tremendous outcome that we've seen in our literature as well. Brett, what do you do in your practice and a patient comes in and you identify them as a smoker? In our practice, we try to get them to quit smoking, as mentioned, because of the risk factors. We have a prevention clinic, so we'll send them to the prevention clinic, which takes like a multimodal type approach where there's actually a psychiatrist, medical doctor there as well to work on this. And I don't specifically do the testing myself, but we kind of rely on that clinic to test to make sure that they have quit smoking. Ideally, we like at least four to six weeks before surgery, but even more if possible, the longer the better. And so it is a, definitely a difficult situation to get these people to stop smoking. And you can't just tell them to go buy some gum over the counter and take care of this themselves. You need to really get them into it, get them to buy into it and, and understand that this is really going to have a, a big impact on their outcome. Yeah. Matt, is that, is that what you're doing in your practice also? That's pretty much the same. Yeah. We like to have them quit smoking about four to six weeks before surgery. 
And we usually consult their family doctor for help on that. Occasionally, we'll talk to psychiatry because there is a link between anxiety and smoking. So sometimes we'll get them a consult with psychiatry to see if they can help. Some of those medications that you might hear about, Chantix and the other ones, those need to be monitored by the right specialist that's nowhere near my uh, area of expertise. So we will make appropriate referrals when that happens to see if we can test them and retest them right before surgery to make sure they've actually stopped smoking prior to surgery. There's been some really tremendous data in our orthopedic literature, at least, showing that cessation of smoking for at least a month or six weeks before surgery can mitigate a lot of the negative consequences of smoking somewhat closer to someone who is a non-smoker. Uh, as opposed to operating on people who are smokers, both from the carbon monoxide aspect of smoking a cigarette and the inability of the red blood cells to carry good oxygen to the tissues that were just operated on, but also to get the nicotine out of their system. So the outcomes are definitely significantly better if we get them to stop smoking. And as I was alluding to earlier, a lot of the patients don't return to smoking, which has been really great. Pete, another risk factor that we often see is obesity. Uh, Obesity is one of the leading epidemics, if you will, in America. And we're seeing larger and larger patients in our practices. There's a huge relationship between obesity and osteoarthritis of the joints due to overload of those joints. How do you talk to a patient about obesity? How does that play a role in joint replacement and preparing for surgery? Yeah, obesity is a very difficult medical problem. I think it's more addictive than nicotine and even heroin. Uh, And the fact that it's socially acceptable, there's a commercial for it every five minutes. So it's a very difficult problem. I mean, the NIH says that's over 70% of the U.S. population is overweight and almost 40% are obese. And I think everyone knows that it's hazardous to your health and it will shorten your life. But the NIH also says that 40% of physicians are overweight and 22% of them are obese. So you can see it's a difficult problem. So the question is, how do you address it? Because these obesity obviously accelerates arthritis and these patients are miserable, you know what I mean? And what do you do with a problem that's so difficult to treat? We don't withhold COPD medicines from smokers. We don't withhold diabetic medicines from people who are overweight. So our approach is that, you know, we educate the patients. We tell them that there are options for weight loss programs and that it will decrease your risk of infection. But in the end, the patient has to take that type of responsibility and the surgeon also has to accept that risk if they do decide to do surgery on a patient who is overweight. So Matt, in your practice, why why do we care about obesity? Because I'll tell you, in my practice, it's not about how difficult it is to do a surgery uh, if the patient is overweight. What is it about obesity that we care about as surgeons? Yeah, I think there's a few things that we touch on. We do know that increasing weight or increasing obesity there usually comes with that multiple other medical issues, including diabetes, uh, lung problems, as Pete was saying, heart problems, kidney problems. So that usually goes hand in hand. The, the higher the weight a person carries, the increased chance of having these medical issues. And so as a surgeon, yes, we can still do the surgery, but uh, you're looking at uh, prolonged operative times in surgery It can be a difficult exposure or difficult trying to get the implants in the right position. And multiple studies have shown that if the surgery takes longer than, say, an hour and a half or so, there's an increased risk of complications. So if you do look at the whole picture, optimizing someone's weight prior to surgery is key to make sure you can uh, be able to perform the surgery in a time-worthy fashion and then get them to, on the road 
to recovery. It's tough though, because you can't say that you won't operate on someone with a BMI over 50. We have necessarily done that in our practice. We look at their overall functional mobility, how they're able to get around when those patients significantly lose the ability to walk or to interact with their environment, you know, that can lead to a whole lot of other issues. So we will counsel the patient and optimize everything that we can uh, prior to doing surgery. But the patient definitely has to know that given, you know, obesity, especially anything over 45 BMI or higher, there are definitely an increased risk for complications. Big ones would be blood clots, infection, and perhaps even fracture when we're putting the implants in. Brad, did you have anything from your side of things? We kind of treat it the same way. I don't really like to have a hard cutoff. I think certainly as the BMI gets a little bit higher, I got to look at the rest of the, the medical comorbidities. I rely on our medical team as we have two experts here. I would take their opinion as to what we should do. And I also kind of look at it as an opportunity to have almost like a contract with our patient where we talk about weight loss. And instead of telling them, look, you're going to go away and come back when your BMI is a certain number. And we try to talk about how they're going to lose the weight and then maybe see them back in three months or four months, something reasonable and tell them when they come back, if you're headed in the right direction, we'll go ahead and schedule the surgery. If you meet the target, and then we can proceed with surgery. If you don't, then we may have to delay it, or we can have that discussion. Are you willing to accept those risks? So we try to use it as more of a tool and a contract together with the patient. So it's something that we can work on together instead of them feeling abandoned and have to go it alone. Yeah. And one of the interesting things on the orthopedic end of things is sometimes you have patients that are more top heavy and they actually have skinny knees. And so having an elevated BMI and just for our listeners, BMI is a ratio of your height to your weight. You can have very thin knees and actually all these risks are for the most part mitigated. Whereas in a hip replacement, if you have a very large hip area and the, the fat tissue envelope they have to go through surgically is greater, there's a higher risk of wound breakdown. So you know, we really have to take the patient into account and where's the fat distributed throughout the body. And that can really play a role in who's a good candidate for a joint replacement or not, depending on where the fat is located. Bill, when you're seeing a patient who is overweight, do you ever consider bariatric surgery? Are there certain patients you'd recommend referring to bariatric surgery? And if you do, when should they undergo a joint replacement after having that surgery? Yeah, we have these discussions pretty much on a daily basis. We're in West Virginia, we're the most obese state in the nation. So for us to have a cutoff would be very difficult and ethically as well. I mean, like Pete mentioned, we don't hold diabetic medicines from diabetic patients. So I would say that a lot of the patients that I am seeing in this 40, almost 50 BMI range, a large portion of them have already had bariatric surgery and at some point lost a little bit of weight and then gained it back. So you know, at that point, what do you do with that patient? You can't really deny them the surgery due to that. But I do recommend bariatric surgery. There were some studies a while back that came out that said, you know, patients did much better with the surgical weight loss than they did on trying to diet on their own because they may not be doing it properly and end up uh, being somewhat uh, malnutritioned if they don't, you know, diet properly. So I do recommend it to patients and we do have a, a pretty good relationship with our bariatric surgeon that does help us out in getting patients in when they do decide to go down that road. I would say success is probably 50-50 in getting them to move forward with that. Uh, as far as timing afterward, I'm not aware of any specific you know, study that showed that. I mean, obviously, if they're on a good trajectory and losing weight, I would recommend them continuing to do that. I've had family members as well that I have recommended for gastric sleeves that wanted the knee replacement. And uh, I pushed them to get that done prior to the surgery. And lo and behold, after dropping about 100 pounds, uh, she didn't need the surgery. The knee pain got better. So as far as timing, though, I would probably think in a six-month to a year range afterward just to get a good idea of how much weight they're going to lose. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, along the lines of what you just alluded to, there was an excellent article in JAMA a couple of years ago showing that if you lose 12% of your body weight preoperatively through diet and exercise, you can actually cut your pain symptoms in half, like 50% reduction in pain just through diet and exercise. 12% was the key number. And that's just stuff you could do to avoid surgery, as you just alluded to. Your own family member had that same uh, outcome. So the reason I ask about weight loss is it kind of leads to my next question, which is malnutrition. Bariatric surgery works because it actually puts the patient into a catabolic state where they're in a slightly malnourished state the entire time. And we all know that you never want to operate on a patient in a catabolic state, a catabolic state, meaning that they're burning more calories than they're taking in. And so the body, when you have surgery, wants to divert those energy resources to healing the wound. But if it's not getting enough energy just to run your own body, you're going to have problems with wound healing potentially. So getting into timing of surgery, bariatric surgery, when you're losing weight, stabilizing. I usually try to talk to my patients about you want to have a stable weight from your bariatric surgery or from whatever weight loss method you're using. But certainly these are the things that we have to consider when to operate. But the other topic of malnutrition is a very important one because we know certainly the Rush Group has actually published a lot of good articles showing that a huge amount of malnourished patients are obese. The patients you at least think of as being malnourished tend to be obese. So Pete, when you're seeing an obese patient, do you think ever, hey, you might be malnourished and do you do any workup for them? And who are the ones you think most about with that? Well, this is a difficult topic because it's how you define malnourished. I mean, the traditional definition is having two of six clinical states. The easy ones to understand are for intake and decreased weight. And on those patients, I do do baseline nutrition labs just to make sure that they're not in some significant deficient state. The problem is, is that especially for obese patients to define them as malnourished, again, the other four categories is decreased subcutaneous fat or have a bunch of generalized fluid accumulation or functional status with a hand grip. And you don't see anybody doing those type of assessments. So what people have been leaning towards is doing more of a lab to define uh, malnutrition. Now that hasn't really been set that those two are directly associated. Now there are plenty of studies that have come out that have shown changes in these laboratory values are associated with poor outcomes, but these studies have not shown that correcting them and how you correct them have changed the outcome. So it's, it's, it's a difficult topic to address. But on those patients who I do suspect, I do get albumins and transferrins and, and even sometimes prealbumins if it's a, a shorter term problem and counseling them because that is a correctable problem if they are malnourished from the underweight side of point. And Brett, are there patients that you might check nutrition labs on, as uh, Pete was just alluding to, things like prealbumin or albumin, lymphocyte counts, transferrins? Are there certain folks that you might be more concerned about? Sure. I mean, when patients come in, if there's a specific red flag, someone who is actually super skinny or is morbidly obese, those are two groups that we will look at. And usually we typically are getting the albumin levels right off the bat in their preoperative labs. We try to get those somewhere between three to four weeks before the surgery. And if we notice a problem or a low level in their protein levels or albumin, then we'll go ahead and have them see a nutritionist and, and start that work up. A lot of people, a lot of our patients will come in and they already have some labs in our system somewhere we can check within the electronic medical record and see their care anywhere and usually pull up a value. And, and if we're concerned at all, then we send them to a nutritionist. And we have, a, again, a preventive medicine clinic that uh, involves, again, psychiatrist is there, nutritionist is there, endocrinologist is there. So it's a nice team approach. This way they can manage the whole thing. I don't order a ton of those labs myself just because, again, I'm usually not the one that acts upon them. So usually we send them to the nutritionist and, and try to get this as a nice team approach. Matt, do you do anything different? 
I think you hit it right on the head there, but I mean, we kind of do the same thing, especially with our obese populations. We're already going to screen them for diabetes, get an A1C, but we'll also run our nutrition labs just to make sure they're not malnourished. And I do appreciate the point that you had too, you know, the really small, skinny patients, you know, BMI under, you know, 22 or under those patients as well. They look a little cachectic at times. We definitely have to look out for malnutrition in that uh, population as well. So the complete opposite of being morbidly obese, of being too skinny as well. So those are the two that really get my attention when they come to our preoperative visits. And then we definitely want to check their labs and make sure everything's in good working order. Yeah, there's one final topic I wanted to touch base on in this first part of this podcast series, which is an important topic, which is diabetes and glycemic control. Lots of patients are coming with diabetes. A lot of that can be associated with elevated BMI, as we alluded to earlier. Bill, and when you're seeing patients with diabetes, what are you looking for and what are we thinking about? Obviously, we get A1Cs on all the diabetics. The issue is, as a group, we looked at, you know, what is our cutoff for an A1C? And it becomes very difficult because you have multiple studies pointing at multiple different levels that are acceptable or unacceptable or, or leading to complications. And we kind of range in the, in the seven and a half percent on the hemoglobin A1C, but it's not just that. I mean, if you look at a lot of the other studies done on cardiovascular patients, it's not necessarily the hemoglobin A1C. It is more associated with perioperative glucose control and whether or not we can manage glucose to be under 200 in the perioperative period. So my thoughts on an A1C is if I got somebody with a 9 or 10 A1C that's averaging 200 under blood sugar, over 200, well, it's going to be very difficult for me to control that blood sugar in the perioperative period and after they go home to keep it below 200. So that's kind of why we've settled on that 7.5 hemoglobin A1C. I will use fructosamine from time to time if I have somebody that two months ago, it was at a 10 hemoglobin A1C, and now they're at eight and they're trending pretty good. And I can get a better idea of what their most recent week or two blood sugar is. I will use the fructosamine in that scenario as well. Pete, what is a hemoglobin A1C just for our listeners? Well, hemoglobin A1C is an indirect way to measure glucose control over the last three months. So it basically measures the glycosylation of red blood cells. So if your sugars are elevated in your serum, then a greater percentage of red blood cells will have sugar attached to it. And that's the advantage of fructosamine is that whereas a red blood cell lasts about three months, its lifespan. So you can only get measurements of the last three months with the A1C. A fructosamine measures glycosylation of proteins, and those proteins are cleared out about every 10 to 14 days. So you can get, if someone makes medication changes more recently, you can get more of a understanding of what's going on now, as opposed to waiting the three months for those red blood cells to be cleared out before you get an accurate A1C. And I approach it the same way, but because there's multiple studies that show cutoffs at 7.5, 7.7, 8.0. But this is one of those medical problems that I think is someone just is more motivation and doing work and not as difficult as weight control. So we take a pretty hard measure on, on these cutoffs because it really boils down to someone just having to do more work to get it better controlled because this is a significant reversible risk factor for complications, not only for surgery, but for the lifetime. Absolutely. Matt, in your practice, do you have a cutoff and how do you handle that? We usually shoot for, again, around 7.5. Uh, sometimes it gets up about 7.7 .7 before surgery. But as long as they're trending in the right direction, they definitely have to be below 8. We'd prefer them to be around 7.5. 
Sometimes if, if they get up there too high and the family doctor can't control their A1C, we occasionally refer to the endocrinologist. They can actually be our ally as well to help them bring the A1C down. But again, that's going to take several months. And if they're trending in the right direction, I think the idea of the fructosamine really helps to get a uh, more accurate picture over, over like the last 10 to 14 days, as Pete was saying. So that's kind of our practice as well. Yep. Well, guys, thank you so much. This was the first part of our podcast series. And we were able to touch base on a number of important topics, including how it's important that we all collaborate with our perioperative medicine specialists on things like smoking cessation, weight loss, malnutrition, and addressing uncontrolled diabetes. Well, I want to thank everyone for taking your time today out of your busy schedules and your ongoing commitment to this very important topic that greatly impacts patient outcomes. This information will be highly useful for our joint replacement patients who are preparing for surgery and will provide them more information so they can partner both with their orthopedic surgeon and their primary care doctors to maximize safety and satisfaction from surgery. As mentioned previously, if you would like more information, please go to our website, www.hipkneeaahks.org. Thank you all for being with us today and have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.